HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're sipping on stories about how access, legislation, and circumstance affect what we drink. I think now it's really changing that there's a growing excitement about drinks that are zero-proof and alcoholic. So it just felt like kind of a very good timing. This plant's been around for millions of years, and uh, I just think that it's so special, so uniquely uh, American and pre-American, that it just should have a very prominent place in our society, you know, for a lot of different reasons. It is helpful to be able to sell one drink. It would be more helpful to be able to sell two or three at a time. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today's guests are Melissa Metric and Wythe Marshall. They are the co-hosts of a new podcast, also on Heritage Radio. It's called Fields, and it's all about telling the stories of people working in urban agriculture. And Melissa and Wythe bring their own expertise on the topic to these conversations. As a professor at NYU, Melissa manages the university's urban farm lab, and Wythe is a research associate in controlled environment agriculture at Cornell University. Melissa, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. And Wythe, welcome. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, so I'm, I'm so excited to have um, fellow Heritage hosts on the show do a little crossover episode. Um, so let's start by digging into your own experiences. Um, I think, you know, I just love to hear how people got into what they're doing and, and, and how they started. Um, Melissa, why don't you start? How did you get into urban agriculture? Sure. Um, well, like, like you said, um, I manage the NYU Urban Farm Lab, and I'm an uh, adjunct, adjunct professor in the Nutrition and Food Studies Department um, at NYU. And um, it's kind of funny. I guess I started growing food 
ooh, a while ago now, like maybe um, in 2005 or something. Um, and I was just out of undergrad and I joined AmeriCorps and I started gardening oh, wow. at a school garden in South Berkeley, even though I'm from New York. Um, I just moved out there and that's kind of where I started. And then I just kept on gardening and, <laughs> you know, also getting into, um, growing edible crops and things like that. I was the garden manager at Roberta's Pizza for either seven or eight years um, when I moved back to New York. And I've been the manager of the NYU Urban Farm Lab, I think for four seasons. I think I started in 2017. Um, what is time today? I don't know. But... <laughs> it doesn't exist, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <It's the> pandemic. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've, do, I've been doing this for a little bit and I've, you know, done plenty of jobs within Urbag and, and also just being a gardener in general for, you know, ornamental crops and things like that. So. Yeah. Well, what is the Urban Farm Lab? Um, so the NYU Urban Farm Lab is, uh, is an educational farm. So I teach a class called Introduction to Urban Agriculture, and it's pretty much um, a lab of where I teach students how to grow food. So the class is an elective and it's open to undergrad and grad students um, through the Nutrition and Food Studies Department. And um, yeah, I go over everything from, you know, sowing seeds to transplanting to, you know, doing uh, like crop maintenance and pest management and all these other things and then harvesting. Um, and we also do a lot of other fun projects. So we just started the NYU Seed Library um, where uh, we have um, a bunch of folks from the NYU community um, actually grow out crops to specifically save seeds. Um, so that's really fun. And then also some students who took my class actually started the NYU um, my, Mycology Group. So that is like oh. NYU's first uh, mushroom club, which is really exciting. So it's a bunch of students that get together and they learn how to grow mushrooms or other uses of mushrooms, like, you know, um, mushrooms that are now in coffee and all these other things. So it's, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's really fun and interesting. And then also, um, the NYU urban farm lab is right behind the silver towers, which is uh, faculty housing. So the faculty also have plots on the farm. So it's also kind wow. of like a community farm. So, um, we do a bunch of different things, you know, it's educational. So we teach students, we have the, um, silver tower residents there. Um, we have a bunch of like, you know, um, kind of experiments and, and research that we're kind of doing on the farm. So yeah, we're doing many things there. It's so fascinating. Is it, I mean, it seems to me like that would be really unique at the university level, this kind of in-depth focus on urban agriculture. Is it pretty unique? Yeah, I would say, I mean, there there are a couple of um, uh, campuses and colleges that have farms um, and also in New York City. So um, it it is definitely unique for NYU to have it. And it's also interesting because, uh, you know, one of... Um, one of the directors of the farm, Jenny Berg, she always kind of uh, mentions that, you know, it might not be like the largest urban farm, but it's definitely the most urban urban farm because it's like right on Houston Street. So it's in the yeah. middle of Manhattan, in the middle of the city. We're on like, you know, six lanes of traffic. 
Um, and people pass by all the time and they're always super interested in what we're doing as well. Um, yeah. So, um, and it's great because it's an elective and anybody from NYU can take the class. So it's not just for the nutrition and food studies students. I have students from, you know, all different schools within NYU who are interested in it. Um, so it's great. And it's also just great to, to get students and residents and community members outside, especially, you know, everything that's happening with the pandemic, with the pandemic, um, you know, having a space where they could go and, um, grow food and relax and be in the sun and things like that. So. Absolutely. Yeah. That's rare in New York. You know, there's not a lot of spaces like that. Um, so, Wythe, how about you? How did you get interested in urban agriculture? Uh, well, I'm an anthropologist. So, you know, I went back to grad school to do a PhD after really studying fiction and writing fiction, um, thinking a lot about science fiction and the climate uh, crises that we face. And I thought, you know, what I want to do is really study what's happening presently with uh, the government or companies and consumers. And, you know, I knew I wanted to focus on the environment, but I actually didn't really have a plan to focus on food. Um, I just sort of stumbled on it in doing these deep readings you have to do to like jump through hoops early on in the, the PhD. And I became really obsessed with with farming and the fact that, uh, you know, wow, this this is such a gigantic sector. It's so linked to all these environmental shifts that are happening. And people, of course, feel very strongly about food. I found very quickly when I began to talk to just even friends or began to try to develop relationships with people at food tech startups, which I thought like, okay, that's interesting that there's this whole sector saying, oh, we're going to like, quote unquote, disrupt food. You know, what does that mm. mean? Um, but I found, you know, people have amazingly right. strong reactions. You know, they really don't like certain ideas or they, they think certain ideas are really inherently cool, regardless of sustainability claims and, you know, any sort of data behind them. Um, so, you know, I, I'm talking now about, for example, cellular agriculture, it's like growing uh, meat without a cow, just growing it in a lab. Or, you know, vertical uh-huh. farming, which is what my, my first book project, my dissertation ended up being about, um, which was happening. You know, I, I've lived in Brooklyn a long time and it, now I live in Queens. But, uh, you know, I, I found out there's a vertical farm around the corner, basically. And so I sort of went and, you know, they were nice enough to give me a tour. And, and I discovered like, wow, this is happening in like Bushwick. Like you're you're starting startups to grow lettuce <laughs> in the middle of Brooklyn. And I knew about community gardens a little. I, I wasn't super <laughs> linked in. But yeah, it just occurred to me, wow, you have these two threads. You have this long history of New York City being a leader with community gardening and that being such an important um, movement for so many folks. And then you also have these commercial startups saying, we're going to grow a bunch of lettuce and herbs indoors and make a bunch of money and it's going to be IP that we're going to you know sell. Um, so I thought, you know, well, that's actually, that's like a book length project. Like I, I initially had a much wider in scope idea of what I was going to write about. And it sort of became narrow and narrow just because more and more was happening in the city. And I kept meeting more fascinating people, um, people who sort of crossed both worlds. Um, the, there began to be sort of policy debates, like how should New York City as an entity, you know, support urban agriculture? Should it support urban agriculture? Who would get money in that case? Um, so these are the questions that have kind of driven me as a scholar. And, you know, Melissa was my friend and was a farmer and I sort of was talking to her about it. I think, Melissa, you came up with the idea, hey, what if we combine forces and try to investigate some of these things for, you know, a popular audience and and reached out to Heritage. But but yeah, I mean, for me, it, it was coming much more from a place of like wanting to talk about technology and the environment um, in, a, in a way that really mattered, you know, something that, that's happening now that seemed really interesting. Um, and just being uh, sort of professionally agnostic and skeptical, like I'm not going in saying I know what farming should or shouldn't be. It's really more a question of, well, w- w- you know, what claims are being made? You know, what values are out there? Like h- how do people sort of value plants and caring for plants as a job? 
So, you know, it, it related a lot to my interest in like changes in labor. Um, you know, you hear a lot after 2008 that, you know, millennials have faced this, this strange, you know, gig economy, these precarious jobs. And, and I saw, you know, urban ag startups as sort of part of that in a way of trying to reinvent um, work and say, well, if you're dissatisfied with whatever work you're doing in an office, you know, come outside or, you know, you're still inside in a vertical farm, but, you know, you, you might be doing something yeah. you find, you know, more fulfilling. You're growing little baby plants. Um, you know, I, I'm not, again, saying that that's necessarily right or wrong, but it, it was just a claim that kind of got me. And I thought, you know, there's there's people doing this who are interesting. There's claims here that have long histories that, you know, I, you could spend a lot of time sort of unpacking. So the, the more I dug, the more I, I found all these other topics, mushrooms, algae, um, you know, it just goes on and on, you know, justice work. Um, so Urban Ag became this kind of lens onto uh, a lot of different aspects of like the city that I care about and history that I care about. Um, and yeah, it really was just, you know, the people. I th- you know, these are great people to to be paid in a way now to, to interview. Um, not by, I should say, paid a part-time by Cornell, not by Heritage. We're, we're doing this for the love. Uh, <laughs> Um, no, I, I, I love, um, everything that you got into there. It's, I mean, I think like our work overlaps a little bit. So when I still lived in New York, I was covering a lot of urban ag and, um, these questions of sort of what is urban agriculture and how should the city support it and how should the city, um, you know, promote and kind of, I guess support it while while also recognizing the different forms it takes. And there was, you know, one of the big questions I think the city is still wrestling with is this difference between community gardens that have been there since like the seventies, right? And and people growing their own food for their communities, low input, right? And then most people now think urban agriculture and think vertical farming. They think, you know, Bowery, Aero Farms, like crazy amounts of venture capital flowing in and it's like the disconnect between those two things is vast and there's a and then there's like everything in between right um how are you um both thinking about this kind of landscape um for fields like are you including the entire spectrum of what's happening in urban agriculture are you focusing on certain stories certain types um talk a little bit about that uh, <laughs> Why would harder. you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could say I could say some things. Um, you know, we've talked about it a lot. I mean, maybe somewhat obviously. Um, I, I think one thing we wanted to do was be yeah, very capacious in defining urban agriculture. We're not policing, you know, what is or isn't urban ag or who gets to fit in. Um, to some degree, with any project, I mean, you start with where you are. So we just started interviewing people we knew, um, and we found fascinating. But you know, that's of course not good enough in the long run, and. and over the past couple of years, because we took a while to get started with, okay, what does it mean to really do a podcast and what does it mean to do it well? Um, you know, we, we have now been a little more systematic and come up, come up with lists and really thought through it topically and said, you know, maybe we should start with sort of arcs and talk to historians, you know, bring in voices of people who study um, the growth of, of different kinds of, of urban ag um, and, and give some context there in addition to, yeah, current practitioners. And, you know, one other thing is just geographic. Like we live in the city, we've lived in the city a long time. We do have links outside of it, but, um, but that again is something that doesn't define all urban ag for everyone everywhere. It's just a place to start. And I think over time, hopefully if we can keep doing this, um, yeah, we can tell other stories. I don't know, Melissa, you, I'm sure you have other thoughts. 
Yeah. And also, um, sometimes we cover like broad topics, like, like for example, we've done an episode on mushrooms, right? So we did an episode on, um, startup companies who are growing mushrooms, um, foragers who forage more mushrooms in the city. Um, you know, um, also people who, uh, grow mushrooms almost as an like arts practice. So, um, we like to interview a lot of different folks with different opinions and they come from, you know, again, these different fields, right? So it's like within the world of urban agriculture, but who is practicing it? So it could be, you know, like a community member, um, it could be an artist, it could be, and all these people could, you know, kind of go weave in and out of what I'm calling them. But, um, yeah, so, so it's, it it is interesting. Sometimes we go for, you know, an actual topic like mushrooms. Sometimes we interview folks who are just doing really cool projects. Um, like we interviewed, uh, Penny McBride who, um, well, Penny McBride, um, wife, you kind of knew her before we interviewed her, but she, helps run farms that, um, that hire, um, folks who one wouldn't necessarily think of to be working on farms, especially indoor farms. Um, so we just like to cover all of these different topics, but I think for season two, I think we're, we're, we're still kind of figuring it out and we're, we're figuring out the different like arches that we're going to do. And sometimes our episodes are whole stories where we interview multiple people and sometimes they're just straight interviews. So we're still kind of like playing around with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still within the world of urbag of urban agriculture. Um, you know, if it's topical on the specific crop or if it's the specific farm and their purpose. Um, or these larger things of like, you know, uh, climate change within urban agriculture or, you know, city planning or sustainability within cities and all these other things. So it seems like the, the topic can go on forever. And sometimes it's actually a little hard to like hone in, <laughs> be like, well, there's so many things to talk about and so many people to interview. So, yeah. I mean, you both brought up mushrooms and I wouldn't have thought of mushrooms at all, you know, just thinking about urban ag. Um, are there a lot of people growing mushrooms in cities? Um, I would say that that it's definitely um, there's a growing interest. Um, so with some of these mushroom startup companies like Smallhold, um, we interviewed Andrew Carter and they've been around for a couple of years now. Um, there's, I, I feel like there's a definite growing interest and also just in supermarkets, like for example, I went to key food the other day and they had oyster mushrooms, which, um, for, you know, for a basic supermarket, that is definitely more of a, um, a specialty type of mushroom. So it's interesting that now a lot of even supermarkets and also the farmer's markets, there's a lot of people like a lot of farmers selling mushrooms. So I think it's becoming more prevalent, but then again, it depends on where you go in the city. If you go to like Chinatown, there's, you know, tons of, of like mushrooms for medicinal uses for edible, you know, like all these different uses. So I think it all depends on, you know, the interest and the community and the culture and things like that. But yes, I think we've seen a growing interest in mushrooms. Why, what would you say? Yeah. Yeah. And like, for example, um, I mean, there's definitely, I think a rise in like mycophilia in general. Um, but in response to that, you have, you know, small hold has done well as well as for example, my, 
my boss and Steve Gabriel and Yolanda Gonzalez, at, um, uh, the city harvest program, uh, you know, they run a, a program, you know, Cornell education program. That's like for teaching the teacher how to set up like mushroom growing clubs. Um, and then separately, there's also, you know, a way to get licensed to forage mushrooms. You learn to, you know, really understand the science, identify, um, you get tested presumably in some way, or, you know, I don't know, you get, I haven't done it, but you, you can now, um, you know, become an official uh, mushroom forger. And so, I mean, yeah, there's definitely growing interest. Um, and I think it's just one of these questions back to this question of like, how do you define urban ag? I mean, urban and rural are these terms that um, seem kind of obvious, but I think even things like the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, begin to kind of break them down. You know, when you have people um, reassessing like, well, what are the benefits of living in a city? Or like, wait, what can I do in a city if I'm not going to be going out as much, not going to go anywhere anytime soon? Um, so, you know, growing at home, you can grow plants, you can also grow mushrooms. And that's something that, um, you know, I think more people are kind of discovering through both like need and also just, you know, the availability of Reddit and YouTube videos. And some of these companies kind of catering to that. And pushing that kind of DIY growing aspect. So I think the whole idea of quote unquote urban ag, I mean, some of it, is, it does cross over also with just with home growing. So it, it doesn't really matter whether you're in a city or a suburb right. or what you're, you're growing, not in the context of a big commercial agrarian farm, but you know, you are growing um, mm -hmm. a lot of food. So, so that's something that we've, we've spoken to a lot of people about. Um, and yeah, I think mushrooms is just one example of, of how that, that has like different, um, different prongs, different things that people are interested in um, increasingly. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along, a three-day hosted virtual garden festival connecting you with the influencers, tastemakers, and cutting-edge content of today's gardening world. The Great Grow Along will feature 40-plus sessions, on topics ranging from houseplants to DIY landscaping. New plant parents and first-time gardeners will gain practical advice and creative inspiration from celebrated garden experts and industry leaders. Costing $29.95, tickets allow attendees to mix and match a wide range of sessions, or choose to follow one of the conference's six tracks, which include edible gardening, urban gardening, pollinators and plants, DIY landscaping, houseplants, and dig deeper. The Great Grow Along will take place March 19th through 21st, 2021. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. All right, we're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. This is Lisa Held. I've been talking to Wythe Marshall and Melissa Metric. They're the host of Fields, an urban farming podcast, also on Heritage Radio Network. So we were talking about mushrooms before the break. Um, are there any other topics that have come up in the episodes you've done so far um, that really, where a guest really surprised you, like something that you hadn't heard about that's happening in urban agriculture right now? Hmm. Um, I would actually say maybe our first episode, which is on seeds. And mm. when we interviewed Ken Green, who um, works on a seed sanctuary, and he specifically um, works with um, the Awasasane uh, tribe that I think they're on the border of New York and Canada. And um, he 
grows out crops with them on um, on this land that I think it's it's used by the Hudson Valley Farm Hub or something. I know I'm kind of getting this wrong. Anyways, um, it was just really... Well, people can listen to the episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but um, the way he kind of just talked about working on this project and the importance of this project, and when he started, um, you know, growing out this corn for the Awasasaneg, um, there was only like two corn kernels left or something, or not two corn kernels, but two corn cobs left corn cob left or I don't know maybe there was like six pounds or something but there was very little amount of this corn. <laughs> not a lot of corn not a lot of corn not a lot of corn um and um and they entrusted him with this corn to grow it out and it was just like it seemed like such a such a um important job and then the idea of growing out all this corn caring for it um loving it and then kind of like giving it, giving it back or giving it up, you know, in this way and, and just, um, how important he felt the work was, but almost how emotional it was to grow out this corn and save the seed. And, um, and really kind of talking about the fleeting of biodiversity for certain cultures, um, and how important like seed saving can be and how it could just go into all of these different, um, realms, um, and so I just felt like that was a really interesting um, and kind of like passionate interview and topic. So, um, yeah, so I think that was one for me. Wythe, did you have one at all? Or Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I think that one highlights something else that's, I mean, it's it's always surprise. It's like not a surprise that it's surprising. But, you know, we were trying to understand like weeds mm. and like biodiversity in the city but in doing so, you know, talking to Ken, whom, whom Melissa knew, who's an expert on seeds, um, it was just so helpful to just understand like a lot about seeds, organic seed growing. And it got us thinking about all these things. And you realize most seeds, basically all the seeds most of us are growing from are not coming from urban environments. So that's the, that idea of a continuum. Like, you know, it's it's hard to sort of stay bounded with urban or not urban, for example, or these topics of, you know, mm-hmm. food sovereignty comes up again and again. And that was one instance where it wasn't the initial like it wasn't the only thing we kind of knew Ken was, was working on a cool project, but it was, it sort of t- took over and became one of those topics. That's just like, Oh wow, this is where the story's headed. Um, and I'm sure you, you experience that all the time, but I, I just feel like um, it's one of the fun things about interviewing people in general. And I think to try to get uh, the right mix of, of yeah, people who can tell those stories um, and, and give um, you know, really what we found, which again, isn't, isn't totally surprising, but it's nice is a lot of people said, Oh, you shouldn't talk to me. You should talk to so-and-so. So there's a kind of, humility and just desire to get at the root and kind of keep stepping backwards. So we're just working through this long list of like, oh man, we have so many people to talk to. Um, and I think a lot of it now, uh, it's, it's not really new. It's just something that hopefully we can amplify, but that idea of, yeah, sovereignty of who has the ability to grow the food they want to eat in what, in, in what contexts. Um, and obviously in an urban context, you know, most people are not growing food. Uh, I mean, really that's true in rural context. Most people are not farming. So I think, I think a lot of it is, is um, maybe they're, they're, you know, we could say there's like this trend where people want to be involved in growing food in some way. And so we're sort of tugging at strings, you know, finding out about different people who are involved in different ways. Uh, but it, but it, it cuts across, you know, real serious questions around. Um, yeah. I mean, among other things, you know, like justice, like I, you know, I, I loved talking to Alexis Mena about, you know, university and just um, how, um, which is an interview that'll, that'll come out in a couple of weeks, but, but yeah, we were, we were talking about, you know, how do you develop um, ag tech startups in the city 
but not with uh, you know private equity in this sort of Silicon Valley um, style. But how would you do it as a kind of community empowerment mm. move? Like, what would that look like? How do you get started? And so, you know, it's just it was like an interesting take. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's so much surprise is like just delight that there there is so much out there happening so rapidly um with food nowadays and it's it really is hard to sort of keep track of it all um yeah and also how a lot of times they can tie back to urban areas like again on like the seed thing and i'm sorry i keep on talking about seeds but um well it's spring we're almost at spring so seeds are on the mind (laughs) um but uh just the sense of of uh like when we we interviewed steph gaylor for our tomatoes episode she actually goes into um how seed companies started in new york city how like a lot of seed companies actually started in new york city and how a lot of people actually save seed in urban areas because they're coming from different countries or different cultures where um, they can't necessarily get, um, you know, certain varieties of vegetables and stuff like that. So they bring seed here and then they keep on saving it like a pepper on their fire escape for years. So that was kind of an amazing moment where it's like actually the biodiversity of seeds can be in an urban area by all the people who are growing out this stuff and then saving it. So that was kind of a, a interesting kind of kind of take too, and also how like a lot of the heirloom stories can be wrong for certain varieties because she's Mm. a historian and she would like trace back if the story was actually like if it made sense in that historical context so um yeah i don't know yeah no absolutely um for the people that you're talking to who are are trying to um you know grow more food in cities and encourage other people to grow more food in cities start agricultural businesses um in urban areas are there common challenges you think that um people face in in doing this work and doing it in a way that is um equitable in access to land i think is yeah and that that again i don't think that's actually um something specific to urban growers either i think new farmers in general face that but certainly in a city yeah land access that's true across the board for sure yeah it's um and yeah, in terms of equity, oh. same thing, you know, you're, you're not going to have as great access to land if you don't have capital generally. So. Yeah. And also access to land that let's say is not going to get flooded the next storm that we get. Right. Or, um, having, um, resources like a, like a good place to get resources. Also programming, if people are interested in programming and how to get that programming funded consistently and also just interest of people. Um, so the sense of, you know, in, in the beginning of the pandemic, like, of course, like a lot of people got interested in gardening. How do we keep that going, especially in urban areas once people get busy again um, or, you know, that type of thing? So how to make it manageable for a lot of people, um, you know, and that also by having land that they could go to year after year. That's the same land that, you know, isn't going to be destroyed with storms and certain things like that. So, yeah. Are there other ways that you've seen um, the pandemic impacting um, urban agriculture? I mean, you mentioned just more people wanting to grow food. I think we have seen that, especially home gardening, right? Um, but any any other impacts? Well, for the commercial companies growing indoors, I mean, they were selling to restaurants, right? And like uh, mm. hotels, you know, stuff like that. Um, you could try to get corporate campus contracts or like, 
you know, maybe a hospital, like like something where you have a steady buyer for a supply yeah. of premium baby greens and herbs. But what happened with the pandemic is those things went away overnight, largely the restaurant sector, you know, imploded, um, which is really unfortunate. But also it was this interesting moment where you had farms saying, well, we still want to grow. We still have this capacity. We've invested in all this stuff. We, we have the, the, the know-how. Um, and so they turned to, to try to sell the customers and had to sort of switch. And um, I think, you know, I, I don't know exactly how long they could keep doing that if they're, you know, I mean, we can assume over the next year, some restaurant business will increase again, one hopes. Um, but, you know, I wonder, I guess that's a question I have in terms of like, how will that direct a consumer model fare? Um, and, and I think that's a kind of missing element that maybe the pandemic hasn't like created solutions to, but has just created even more urgency around is kind of like a, like the idea of CSA, like community supported ag, you know, how do you have, um, you know, goods reach people where they're at, um, and, and have the cost not be crazy. Uh, and, and how do you sort of, um, have different supply chains that are resilient. So, you know, we didn't face crazy shortages, but just facing any shortage for many of us, it was like the first time in U.S. history, a lot of people experienced that. Like, oh, I can't get the thing I want. Um, so I think it, the pandemic created this this yeah. sense of like, oh, well, maybe there are better ways, you know, to kind of connect food growing to, you know, people who want to eat. I think, yeah. And also just like so many of these farms they offer all of these other services. So for example, a lot of these places also have events all the time. They have weddings mm, on their farms. Yeah. They have dinners on their farms. They have right. like, like, you know, farm workshops and stuff like that. And that could be a huge income for a lot of these farms. And that also went out the window, right? So it's like, you know, if you have a wedding or something, somebody can pay a lot of money for a wedding and that could really help pay possibly the farmer. I don't know, but, but just a sense of like, how can one sustain being an urban farmer and get paid enough to pay rent in urban areas, you know? And it's like, how have people figured that out by having these business models that encompass multiple things? And again, once the pandemic happens, it's like, oh, well, we can't have these events. So, you know, are we going to have to cut our labor, all these other things? So, just looking at it through that way of, of how it's still hard to make a living growing lettuce, <laughs> especially in an urban area, you know, yeah. so um, still figuring that out and that those larger issues within our food system. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to like think a little bit about the future as we, as we wrap up and, and what urban agriculture might look like. One thing that that just came to mind while we were talking is like, you know, there was this moment maybe like a de about a decade ago, 10 years ago in New York, where it felt like urban farming was kind of like the Brooklyn Grange was founded. There was Eagle Street. There are these big urban farms that were kind of coming up um, and creating these big spaces on rooftops. And I kind of thought it would grow more to be honest I thought more more farms of that scale would come out and and it, to me what I, it seems like has happened is there's a lot of the indoor stuff a lot of the venture capital funded like massive indoor growers and then the community gardens are still there maybe people are growing at home but that kind of like outdoor farm on a rooftop hasn't really other than the Brooklyn Grange it's it's like almost like no one else is doing it that way um do you think that that do you think there's a reason for that? Am I wrong? I'm just like curious what, how you think about like what the future will look like and what, what that kind of tells us about the trajectory. 
Um, yeah, I think there was like a lot of excitement and I think a lot of that happens, um, during, you know, the tech bubble, like, like during 2008 and during the recession, um, a lot of people kind of switched, um, and there was this growing, uh, interest in the media of like who they covered, even though there was like, of course, you know, urban farmers who have been doing this since the sixties and seventies right. and they don't really get media coverage. And then all of a sudden in 2008, everybody's a rooftop farmer. But that being said, <laughs> that being said, you know, I'm very close friends with a lot of rooftop farmers and I, I definitely appreciate their work. Um, but, um, I think it's also the idea of, you know, the way people look at it in the sense of um, how much food can we possibly grow in an urban area, right? Can we cover every rooftop? And I feel like that was always the wrong question because it's, it's more about why are people practicing urban agriculture in general? And also um, this idea of space and this idea of like every rooftop can be converted they can't, especially with all of these like older buildings of like the rooftops falling apart and leakage and like you have to have the right structure and also the sense of having a private building and making that a public space on the roof and all of these other things uh, that kind of encompass that. And also what if the project doesn't work out? You put tons of soil up on the roof and the landlord's like, okay, what am I going to do with all this soil now? And, you know, so it's like, it, it seems like there was this idea of like, yes. And, and I think, you know, the Brooklyn Grange and also Eagle Street are doing, you know, really great job in keeping their businesses going and expanding and all these other things. Um, but, um, I think the idea is, is to look at the larger scale picture of, you know, everybody who's doing it and everybody who has been doing it since, you know, Mm. the start of New York city or like in the 1890s with the vacant lot program or, you know, right. so, so just like the history of it and, um, and all the different reasons why people do it. So, you know, it, um, is it, should it just be, you know, so that we could grow a bunch of baby greens or, you know, is it to teach people, you know, how to be a beekeeper or how to, you know, or how to grow food for their community and be more self-sustainable or for job training, um, especially within sustainable jobs within urban areas, right? So I think there's so many other aspects to it. Um, And yeah, and I guess also just like the funding for it, like who's funding it, um, who who wants to be funded, right? Like that's the other question um, within certain communities, like they might wanna be self-funded. Um, because then they are fully in charge of their project, right? So I think there's, Absolutely. I don't know if that really answers your question, but... <laughs> it, was, it was like a really open-ended question. Yeah. I was like, yeah. so the future and the past. <laughs> that's kind of... Yeah, in? that's kind of the focus of my work is like the extra economic incentives. Like why mm-hmm. do you do controlled environment ag in a city if, you know, in a way whether or not it makes money? Because some people will say die hard, like, oh, it's going to make a bunch of money. And others will say, you know, it doesn't, Rooftop farms and indoor farms in really dense metropolitan areas, just it doesn't ever make sense. You know, why would you pay that much for real estate when you could do it just outside the city, save a lot of money on the real estate, and you're still only driving, you know, less than an hour, right, or whatever. It's it's not a huge deal to, to right. do that last mile as much as it's made out to be necessarily. I mean, certainly in terms of carbon, it's not. So, um, you know. That's a big question, mm-hmm. the economics, and I'm not I'm not saying I have the answers or like we shouldn't think about it, but I do think to Melissa's point, the real interesting right. thing for us, right? We're not economists, you know, is like Melissa teaches farming. I, I'm a 
you know, a social scientist and humanist, it's like, you know, well, why do people care? Like, why do we, why are they interested? Why are they excited? Both the people engaging in the farming, the people funding it, the people eating the food. And so what you find is all these different things. Like education is a huge component. And I think that's been a driver. And what you've seen is in, in some ways just, you know, breaking up of bigger modalities into smaller ones and trying stuff out. So you still have, you know, Aero Farms is still around, big warehouses in New Jersey. Um, you still have Gotham uh, Greens and the Brooklyn Grange, you know, and the early early rooftop farms along with mm-hmm. um, with Eagle Street. Um and, you know, they've expanded. I mean, Gotham has sites all over the U.S. now, um, and, and AeroFarm is expanding. But what you also have mm-hmm. are all these smaller indoor units in schools, um, some of which are rooftop greenhouses, some of which are vertical, right. you know, kind of cabinet style. So you have Sunworks, New York City Sunworks, and Teens for Food Justice, um, and, and other organizations. Um, you know, Green Bronx Machine has been around, you know, using teaching using um, tower gardens. You know, Stephen Ritz does amazing work. Uh, growing food in, in cities, but it's not right. It's not to make a bunch of money on lettuce. It's for a completely other reason. It's to teach, you know, students um, about food and to teach them STEM skills. Um, and you hear this with schools increasingly. Well, actually you can teach computing because you can have the machines, you know, automated and then you're controlling simple, you know, sensors, you're, you're controlling lights, water, stuff like that, you know, pumps um, and, and learning how to do that. And at the same time, you're growing high quality food. And so you're learning a little about that. Um, and I think that logic makes a lot of sense as to why we might grow more of our own food. Um, but, you know, for me, it's interesting because then it means, well, who's the farmer there? You know, no one's the farmer in that school in a way other than maybe one or two professionals who are like mm. advising the bio teacher or some, you know, but it's the kids aren't really farming. They're doing some farm work. Um, the teachers are doing some farm work, but it's it's distributing actually that identity, um, which is very different. I don't think that'll ever compete at scale on its own with like agrarian, you know, farms that run professionally outside cities. But I think what it might do is supplement and bring in, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of value in terms of like engagement and, and yeah, just education. And, and you can say that same about, you know, community gardens, which have been doing amazing work. And if it's supported, you know, the whole sector more in the future, they can do even more amazing work. That's, that's similar, right? They can educate, um, they can provide spaces for communities to gather for events, as Melissa said. And I think those are reasons to be sort of excited and hopeful. And we've heard this, um, not only in New York, but when we interviewed, you know, a guy I met in Dallas, who's working with churches in South Dallas and he got, um, he basically was given land at the state fair to build a big greenhouse, fill it with stuff and give away all the produce. So the state fair, you know, I mean, it's kind of, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, it's the state fair trying to look at it's PR, but on the other hand, they grow an amazing amount. of food. <laughs> Right. You know, he's, he takes it extremely seriously and yeah. he uses it as a platform to help churches grow their own food. So it became a, a sort of accelerator it's program incredible. in a way for that area. So I think that's where it's like, okay, that's, that's a cool use of urban ag that isn't about competing with, you know, any other farm. It's, it's about, you know, changing how people are relating to, to food and to green space, you know? And yeah, that could be answered a million yeah. different ways. So that's, you know. Right, right. No, I think it's, yeah, just sort of working towards a more expansive understanding of urban agriculture and, and not, not just what it looks like, but what it's for. Right. That's for, Yeah. Um, thank you both so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun. Yeah, thank you uh, thank so you. much for having us. And thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held.
The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.